Paul Shapiro, the CEO of Better Meat Company. Paul is also a celebrated author and is revolutionizing the way we think about meat and protein by using a modern twist on age-old fermentation. Paul is here to answer all of our questions about this technology and his company, from how it's made to how it compares to traditional meats and plant-based alternatives to the challenges and opportunities in bringing this to market. If you like this type of unedited, long-form content, please like and subscribe. Every bit helps. We are working to put out two to three new episodes every week and have cool things planned for when we reach 10,000 new subscribers. Let's stay curious, delve into the world of clean meat with Paul Shapiro on this episode of Learning with Lowell Show. Is this a normal fungi? Is it, does it actually fruit? Is it like, uh, is it like yeast? Like what is it actually, the, the proteins? Uh, sure. So for those who, uh, you know, may not be like totally initiated, you know, the world of fungi is extremely diverse and it actually includes yeast as well. So uh, to many people, when they think about fungi, they think about it as a synonym for mushroom. Um, but in fact, only about 10% of fungal species produce mushrooms at all. So 90% of fungal species mm. never produce a mushroom. And what we use here at the Better Meat Co. is one of the species. We use a filamentous fungi. Uh, the genus is called Neurospora. And it is uh, a mycelium, so it grows underneath the ground, uh, but it never produces a mushroom per se. And so we're basically talking about growing whole fungi that has a naturally meat-like texture in its unprocessed state that you can use as an ingredient for alternative meats. Um, but no, it's not a mushroom, but yes, it is fungi. Sweet. And is it, how'd you uh, focus down on that uh, genus? I mean, there's there's thousands and thousands and thousands you could have gone from, uh, picked from. Um, yeah, so if you look at the mycelium market today for alternative meat, it's pretty much dominated by one company, corn, just Q-U-O-R-N. It's a British company. It's not as well known in the United States, but it's pretty popular in Europe, at least in, in Western Europe. And uh, they use a species called Fusarium venenatum. And that's pretty much like 99% of the so-called mycoprotein market, right? Is basically Fusarium venenatum. And so you're, what you're pointing out, Lowell, is, is correct that there's thousands of other genera or species out there that you could utilize for various purposes. Imagine, for example, if, you know, the only thing that we made meat out of was chickens and you didn't have pigs or turkeys or cows or fish, et cetera. Or imagine if in the plant-based meat world, if you only had soy, right? You didn't have pea protein or wheat protein or chickpea or fava bean protein. That's what it's like right now. And so what we did was underwent a strategy where we screened lots of different strains of filamentous fungi and sought to really determine one that would be good on three characteristics. One, meat-like texture, two, protein accumulation, and three, growth rate. So we're using fungi that are essentially undomesticated. They're like wild type fungi. Mm -hmm. So it's not like uh, chickens who have been selectively bred over thousands of years to grow extremely rapidly, right? Like we're using the equivalent of a chicken who was taken straight out of the jungle before domestication ever occurred. And so, it's really important that we begin with a baseline of a very rapid growing organism so that way we don't have to you know select for rapid growth uh, maybe there's ways to enhance the growth rate in the future but for now we are working with a, a you know a, an undomesticated wild type organism that has not been optimized for uh, growing commercially and that's why we wanted those characteristics again growth rates protein accumulation and meat like texture do you have plans to do some domestication to make it have, uh, you know, we haven't talked about trade-offs yet, but to make it even stronger of a, of a source? 
Uh, well, I think the honest answer would be we have aspirations to do that. Mm. I don't know if I would call them plans <laughs> yet, but we have aspirations. Makes sense. Are there trade-offs? Like, a, like you have three things that you were clearly looking for sometimes. I mean, there's always that uh, fun quote where it's like, you can get it fast, you can get it cheap, or you can get it uh, done well. <laughs> so you got to like pick two. But it seems like you've been able to yeah. get all three, which is kind of kind of unique. Yeah, we, we have. So um, it, it's particularly useful. At the same time, you can always do better. Um, you mm -hmm. know, we're, we're not sitting on our laurels. We want to continue to drive down the cost of production so that we can compete on cost with commodity factory farm meat. And that's going to involve increasing growth rates and other types of factors that are really important. Yeah. But does it have, um, like, does it require, like, more food or something to grow as fast or something? Like, it, it just sounds like that's such a, such a good option. Um, yeah, that would not be good, right? So the feedstock is the biggest cost that you have, and you don't want to sacrifice uh, one for the other. You don't want to say, okay, yeah, we'll get, we'll grow faster, but you got to use a lot more feed. Like the goal is to make the, the purpose for rapid growth is to cut down on costs, uh, so that you're using less energy and it takes less time and so on. Um, so if, it, if, if rapid growth is only made possible by additional feeding, um, presuming that the additional feeding is excessive, then it's probably not economically wise. Um, but, you know, you look at chickens as an example again, and it, it's sad what we've done to them because these are living, feeling creatures as opposed to microscopic fungi, which don't feel anything. But, um, you know, you can bring a chicken to slaughter weight with like a quarter of the feed that you once needed uh, in order to do it. And so we could engage in a domestication program that created uh, fungi, which could grow to the, their uh, harvest weight in, uh, within, you know, with a quarter of the feedstock needed, you end up dramatically driving down the cost of goods sold. And what, what stage do you see yourself being in terms of going from like a, like zero R&D, do you already have some products to, let's say like Impossible Burger where you have, you're out on chains, like in, where it's more like a finished product, if that makes sense? Like how much of it is still being developed versus like finalized out in the wild type thing? Uh, that's a good question, Lowell. So uh, we are making lots of mycelium. We have a three-story tall fermenter in which we grow the mycelium and we can make all types of really delicious products with it. We can make everything from chicken breasts, to bacon, to turkey slices, to foie gras, and more. And these are great products. Some of them are on restaurant menus. Um, the problem is that even though three stories sounds very big, it's only enough to supply like local restaurants. It's not enough to supply, uh, let's say the Tyson foods or the Hormel foods of the world. And so the task before us is not so much to refine formulas for how we can turn the mycelium into really delicious foods. That's already done. The task before us is to scale up to have fermenters that instead of three stories, I would say, are maybe 10 or 15 stories tall. Um, so, you know, essentially you need, in, in order to actually make the dent that we're trying to make, which is to reduce the number of animals who we need to raise for food, we just have to have a lot more fermentation capacity. That makes a lot of sense. Have you thought about, I mean, Sacramento, I don't think is a relatively cheap area. I'm from the Midwest, so I'm used to things being about like third the cost. Have you thought about building something in like Tennessee and then just using the shipping hubs out there to move it around the, uh, the U.S.? Lowell, I can assure you that while our headquarters and our pilot scale facility is in California, uh, that will not be where our, our commercial manufacturing occurs. Mm. Um, there's a reason why all these big food companies are in the Midwest and we are not going to buck that trend, I can assure you.
Yeah, I think you'd like Madison or something, but other than like the temperature, I don't know a place in the Midwest that you know, is quite like Sacramento. Uh, before we were recording, for your listeners' sake, uh, Lowell was telling me that it was like nine degrees or negative nine degrees or something in, in Wisconsin where he is. So it didn't, he wasn't selling it. Um, but <laughs> I, I can assure you, we will be uh, putting up manufacturing facilities in the Midwest, not in California. Do you, um, when you look for places, do local governments give you incentives to, to pick a certain spot or are you too new to, I know like at a certain scale, like Tesla gets stuff thrown at them all the time, but when you're first starting out, like maybe people aren't as generous. Yeah. I don't think there's as much prestige as associated with, you know, bringing fungal fermentation to your town as bringing a Tesla factory, but they (laughs) want jobs, obviously any, any municipal authorities will want, um, will want uh, manufacturing that brings jobs. And that's what we do. So no, we're not as big as a Tesla manufacturer, but we are still looking to build some pretty substantial fermentation assets. And so the short answer to your question is yes. Uh, local municipalities come to us on a regular basis, seeking to incentivize us to move to where they are. Great. And, um, so when it comes to the actual, uh, production of whatever, whether it's, uh, you know, the the crab version of what you've made or, uh, you know, beef or, you know, you have like a, quite a big list actually, but um, does it differ at all to traditional cell agriculture? Well, even though uh, cell agriculture is pretty non-traditional so far. So we have like the comparable, you know, you get a cow, you raise it and it goes through like a huge process before you can eat it. Then you have cell ag, which, you know, you get some cells, you put it in a vat, it grows, then you process it down and goes, you go through that process. Um, how does it compare to, to your process? Uh, sure. So I'm very bullish on what you're referring to as cellular agriculture or growing actual animal cells. Um, so I actually wrote a book on this topic. It's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And in the book, Clean Meat, I tell the story of the pioneers, the investors, the entrepreneurs, the scientists who are all racing to commercialize the world's first slaughter-free meat. And I I remain extremely bullish on this technology. At the same time, that's only one way to recreate the meat experience. It's kind of like looking at, let's say, wind, solar, geothermal, nuclear, like these are all ways to create energy without fossil fuels. And so you can be bullish, let's say, on wind and solar at the same time. Well, I am very bullish on both animal cell culture and fungi fermentation. But the way that we differ, to answer your question directly, Lowell, is that it's a lot easier to grow fungi than it is to grow animal cells. One, you need um, different types of conditions that are easier to to create. Two, you have much shorter fermentations. So instead of fermentations that are weeks long, you have instead fermentations that are hours or days long. Then you also have uh, less risk, although still risk, but less risk of contamination. and uh, cheaper feedstock as well. The feed that fungi enjoy consuming is far less expensive than the feed you need for animal cells. So there's a bunch of reasons why it's basically easier and cheaper to grow fungi than animal cells. Of course, in that case though, with fungi fermentation, you're creating things that look like animal meat or that have the texture of animal meat, but they aren't actual animal meat. In the case of animal cell culture, you're growing actual real animal meat without animals. And so there are key benefits to doing that over fungi fermentation, but economics is not one of them. Mm-hmm. You also, I think you don't have the human bovine, uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the human bovine serum. There, there you go. Um, you don't have to deal yeah, with so that. Already yeah, so yeah, amazingly, here. they're not using human bovine, but they're, they're using uh, the <laughs> bovine serum, some of them. But 
Um, this was an issue, like in animal cell culture, with these companies using uh, fetal bovine serum as yeah, a um, as part of their feedstock, which of course raises ethical concerns, but also financial concerns, because fetal bovine serum is extremely expensive, and there's really no way to commercialize it at scale. Uh, there's just not a lot of you know aborted uh, bovine fetuses out there, right? Uh, so. Um, thankfully, nearly all the companies, at least all the major companies in the space, have moved away from using bovine serum in their uh, feedstock. Now, they've moved largely to animal-free types of ingredients, which is great, but still, you know, they don't necessarily, at least today, do as good of a job as uh, bovine serum does. And so, yes, there are alternatives to it, um, but they're not necessarily identical in functionality. So there's still some ways to go there. Mm-hmm. So for for Ryza, I'm hopefully I believe I'm saying that right. For the many different products that you have, are they is it possible to be vegan friendly, or do you have to have uh, some amount of like actual crab or actual beef or anything in there? Um, yeah, you can do both. So um, you know, I, I am a vegan. I've been vegan for 30 years, and I would be displeased if I wasn't going to eat these products that we're making. Uh, so you can use it to make really delicious, uh, totally animal-free products. Um, but you can also use it to make better meat. To actually take a crab cake and make the crab cake be healthier and more sustainable, and, and use fewer crabs. So you can do it either way: create animal-free or enhanced meat products. Do you sell as like a supplier to people who then take your materials to 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 package and build whatever product they want, or do you see yourself yeah. building one specific thing? Yeah, you? that's right. Everything that we sell is vegan, but we sell to meat companies that can use mm-hmm. our ingredients to use them however they want to okay. either create animal-free meats or to create um, some hybridized enhanced meat as well. Yeah, so it sounds like you're very much like a B two B. Do you have like a, or is there some like B two C in there? Yeah, I mean, we're primarily a business-to-business ingredients yeah. company. We do have some products that we make that we sell in restaurants, like the mycelial foie gras. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we're B2B. We make mycelium, we sell it to other companies who use it as an ingredient in their products. Makes sense. Do you have a, is that, is that your the continuation of your amb- ambition for the company, or how do you see a progression over the next couple of years? You know, I, I would like for us to be like a cargo of mycelium. Right now, you know, Cargo is this multi-billion dollar company. Nobody knows the name because you don't buy a product on the supermarket shelf that's labeled as Cargo, right? But you go to Cargo, you can buy soy protein or wheat protein or chickpea protein or pea protein and so on. When you come to the Better Meat Co. in the future, you'll have a menu of mycelial options that you can choose from. And those options create all different types of, of applications. So you can maybe one, one type of mycelium might be better for crab, another is better for turkey, another is better for steak and so on. And so our aspiration is um, not just to be selling one species or even one genus of mycelium as an ingredient, but really to be a mycelial ingredients company. And you'll come to us and can have all of your ingredient needs provided by the wonderful world of fungi proteins. Do you, um, what do you think about, um, like, so there's like people up in Alaska that can't uh, crab fish anymore. I've, I've thought that would be a unique opportunity for people like such as, such as yourself who could go up there and like repurpose factories that are basically just sitting there and then have them like kind of make these products. Then Alaska is actually going to be a really big shipping hub, like the Midwest as like the, the poles start to melt and stuff like that. And it already is like, I think it's one of the number one, um, freight, uh, ports is in Alaska or on the planet or something like that. But I, what do you think about like um, taking advantage of of uh, 
these opportunities to partner with people that are disaffected because of you know the crabs going away or something like that you know it's interesting well i've never thought about that but i love the idea i love the idea of, of taking a facility that used to have live animals coming in who were turned into things like crab cakes and converting that into a fungi fermentation facility that now makes alternative meat that would be a dream come true it would almost be like um you know there's a, a line in the book of isaiah in the old testament or the hebrew scriptures uh where he talks about um turning swords into plowshares and so there's this prophecy from isaiah about taking the implement you know the weapons of war and turning them into plowshares so you can grow food with them. And what a world that would be to take a facility that had specialized essentially in, you know, turning animals into, into food products and converting that into a facility that instead now makes meat out of fungi. Ah, I, I hope we do that. I would really be overjoyed to make that happen. Yeah, I think it'd be really cool because the, Especially in Alaska, the, it's one of the few states that has a lot of active uh, uh, role, like an active role from the government. Like the government, weirdly enough, does like a lot of stuff, like give back to the to the people. And right now, uh, before this year, like the season for crab fishing, for instance, I'm gonna have some crab fishers on. So that's why you know I've been reading about this. But uh, that uh, like it's been go it's going for like six months or nine months to six months to three months to now you know not at all. So like even when, which is very. Uh, concerning because even when they could work they spend nine you know nine months of the year not doing anything and it's really dark up there and stuff like that so like it's just a missed opportunity in terms of labor and uh these people like clearly you know care about making something that people love uh yeah well you know i i am going to be talking with some of my colleagues about your idea law and if we do cut a ribbon in alaska i hope you'll be there to join us and cut that ribbon together since it was the uh, lol be the will thompson factory <laughs> that's going to be uh, uh your idea put into practice great i'll take all the credit if it works and i'll forget that i suggested if it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah, it was my stupid idea if it doesn't don't worry <laughs> no i'm just kidding i'll take both um well i guess it depends on execution do you, um, as you look forward and you're mapping stuff out, you seem like a very analytical person in terms of how you phrase your questions or response to my questions. How, how are you breaking down the, like, how are you seeing the future in terms of, like, things that you're going to have to overcome? Like, what are some of the hurdles that are, that are standing between you and being like cargo? Well, the big hurdles for us are just building fermentation capacity. Mm. You know, like if you have, let, let's say you have a crop, like, you know, let's say you want to have make more products out of chickpeas, right? So, you know, your, your hummus is becoming, again, in the last 15 years, hummus has become way more popular in the United States. And so we have way more acres devoted to chickpea production than we did before. That basically means that you're going to take land that was growing something else, and now you're going to grow chickpeas on it. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of old land that was used for growing tobacco is now used for growing chickpeas for hummus, really fascinatingly. Um, but anyway, it's not as easy to switch to fungi because with fungi, we're not just planting acres that were already, you know, under agricultural control. We have to actually build manufacturing facilities. You have to actually build concrete, stainless steel, put up fermenters that reach to the sky and then run a pretty elaborate process in order to produce all of this mycelium. And so the cost is dramatically higher. The cost of entry into the world of fungi fermentation is just so much higher than simply planting new acres of land with, let's say in that case, chickpeas. 
And so a, a big barrier for us is just the capital needed in order to scale this thing up actually produce a river of our ryzen lipoprotein to flow through the food industry and slash humanity's footprint on the planet, that is the main barrier that we face, honestly, is, is capital. How much, um, like ballpark, how much would you need? And like, what would be the time horizon? Um, to put up an initial plant, you're probably talking, depending on how big you want it to be, anywhere from like 50 to $100 million. Um, mm, so wow. the payback period is pretty attractive on these types of um uh, heavy capex product uh, projects, but still, you're talking, uh, you know, about sizable amounts of capital here. You know, not single-digit millions at all. Do you? That's uh, like something you probably have to raise from like a VC. I, I don't know how many uh, banks would be like, oh, here's eight percent on that, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's tough to find banks who are going to, you know, just give you a loan when you're like a pre-revenue startup that's only been around for a few years. So. You really do have to work in that case with venture capitalists who believe in what you're doing. And at the Better Meat Co., we've been extremely fortunate. We've been extremely fortunate because we have investors who really believe not only in our mission, but importantly, in our ability to achieve it. And so these are investors who have been backing us since a time when we had nothing. It was just an idea. You know, five years ago, uh, we were recording this at the very end of 2022. Well, at the very end of uh, 20. Uh, 17, just five years ago, this was an idea. There was no better Miko. It didn't have a name. It didn't have people working here. It was just an idea. Five years later, we have 25 full-time people. We have this fermentation facility where we've got this, again, three-story tall fermenter. We have great partnerships with companies like Purdue Farms, Hormel Foods, and, and others. And now we're in the place where we're ready to take this to the next level so that five years from now, when we are again talking, well, that we'll be able to say, you know, five years ago, we didn't even have anything in Wisconsin. Now we have two plants that are up and running. So we'll see. Um, but that's how I view it. Is there, um, one of the benefits of a startup is that you can be really agile. There's this really fun story where uh, uh, Richard Branson, I don't know if you ever read the book, uh, Lose My Virginity. It's a fun title and a, a fun book. But uh, he talks about how he wanted to put uh, TV screens into the back of uh, the headrests on planes, and no one was doing it at the time. And so it cost like $11 million to put them in, and no one would give him the money, even though he had planes. And so uh, he took a step back and was like, well, could we get like a, could we get like a Boeing to give us like $6 billion, like could we get $6 billion, a $6 billion loan from the bank to get uh, a fleet of uh, Boeing planes? And, they, and then they went to Boeing and they said, hey, if we buy this amount of planes, will you put the TV screen in the back of the headrests? And they're like, oh yeah, we'll throw that in, that's nothing. And then the, uh, the banks were like, "Oh, we'll sign that. Yeah, we'll we'll give you that deal. We'll we'll we'll, we'll approve six billion with the with the, the planes as the underwrite, but they won't give you eleven for uh for just the headrest itself." Have Have you seen anything like that in your startup journey so far, where you've been able to be agile and then uh, like think kind of just like that's like such a weird thing. Like I don't know how you thought about that in the moment, but it, it worked out. Yeah, what an interesting story. So I haven't read Losing My Virginity, though, interestingly enough, it's actually on my Amazon wish list right now. I, I do want to read it. Um, but that's a, a, a really interesting story. It's a really interesting story. And I presume the bank just thought that it wouldn't be that much of a sell for people. I don't know, to have the, the mm -hmm. you know, to have the TV there. It's an interesting point. Uh, but no, there's no story that comes to my head immediately. Um, but uh, in terms of that is comparable to that, that's a very interesting story. But in terms of agility, I will tell you, like we have made numerous pivots 
I don't mean pivots away from the core business model, but pivots from when we were originally started, we were really focused on trying to make plant proteins work. About six months in, we started thinking fungi proteins were actually gonna be more effective than what we had been doing. And so we switched from using plants to using fungi and that really made a big difference for us. So uh, that's one example. And it wasn't the type of thing that everybody understood, you know, like with plants, you can just go on the market and buy them, right? They're just commodities that are readily available. With fungi, you have to grow them yourself. It's very difficult. You know, imagine, you know, think about a company like Beyond Meat, right? They're buying pea protein and then they turn it into Beyond Burgers. You know, they're not growing the peas, right? <laughs> like, you know, they're, they have a different role in the supply chain than the people growing them. And yet, you know, we've chosen a path which is difficult because we are the ones growing the, the fungi but the, the both the functional and nutritional benefits of this product are so great that I, I think it's worth doing it. Does it have a, any enhanced shelf life compared to the lag um, and traditional? Um, you know, we sell a dry shelf stable ingredient. Mm. So we, we take the psyllium, chop it up and dry it and then sell that. And so the shelf life is like 12 months. How would that right. compare to uh, dried meat? I don't know. It's probably similar, honestly. Yeah, there's some like weird meat out there called pemmican, which can last for 20 years, but no one wants to eat that. Yeah. It's like what the tra uh, fur trappers were using in Canada when they were like out there for uh, a really long time. Yeah, it, it's like uh, uh, that's use, pretty like, remarkable. Um, you know, I I would love to know like what what happens to that meat to make it last <laughs> for 20 right? years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, if society collapses and I find a bag of that meat, I'll tell you, I'd be pretty pleased. Mm -hmm. um, so for you, it was uh, one of the big things was uh, sourcing the mycelium itself. When it comes to the factories, is that still going to be a concern like the throughput or have you found partners to build it or is that a part of the factory itself? If that makes sense. Uh, no, once you have your mycelium, you never have to go back to obtain more kind of like having a sourdough starter culture. Okay. You know, you can always just kind of take from it and then it grows back. So you need a bank of your mycelium that you're keeping on ice essentially. Um, but once you have it, you're never going back to the well to get more of it. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Then uh, I was just uh, thinking about uh, uh, about how you do that. The, I was uh, thinking about like mead and stuff, like, you know, how old, uh, fermentation is is there anything um you talk about how like fermentation in itself is like something age old i think uh the first yeah i mean fermentation is as old as egypt but um is it the the same as like microbreweries and how cell egg describes fermentation in terms of just like these big stainless steel uh tubes or is it is yeah, there any like it, uniqueness to mycelium based to the untrained eye it would look pretty similar um, you know, you walk in and you'll see stainless steel tanks that have liquids and microorganisms inside of them. There are differences, but you know, I, to the untrained eye, I don't think any of this stuff would look that different from a microbrewery or yeah. uh, animal cell culture or fungi culture. Um, you know, to somebody who knows what they're looking at, they'd pretty be easily be able to tell the differences. Um, but to lay people, no, I don't think that they would notice a difference, honestly. Another uh, point for Madison is there's a ton of microbreweries up there, like the microbrewery capital yeah. of the world. So they're just waiting for you. Um, oh, that's cool. Right. So I actually joke that we're like a microbrewery, except we're a microbrewery. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> so great. I actually lovingly refer to our uh, our our plant, our pilot plant here in Sacramento as the microbrewery. Mm -hmm. Is um, 
I can't think of how to like phrase the question. It's like it keeps like uh, like eluding me. But is there um is there so if you're the supply chain for this industry for these uh, proteins, how and it's really in the development phase. Like all these things, like all 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 team proteins. Like there's like jerky. There's like a small scale stuff. Like but there's nothing that's quite like Tyson's chicken yet outside of like Impossible Burger. But even they're having some problems. I guess. Uh, how long do you think it's going to be before we see like like this being a big big like at least a third third of uh, how we eat? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. If you look at the alternative milk market, it's grown pretty rapidly. So uh, right now, about fifteen percent of all the fluid milk that's sold in the United States is coming from plants. So that could be soy milk, almond milk, oat milk, etc. Right. Um, but in the meat world, it, it's way less than, than 1%. And so yeah. um, there's still a lot of room for growth there. And so there's different questions like why, why are Americans drinking so much more plant-based milk compared to plant-based meat? And uh, there, you know, one, you know, a lot of Americans are allergic to milk, right? So like nearly all Latinos and African-Americans and, and Asian-Americans are just lactose intolerant. So that's one big reason why people choose plant-based milks. Um, another uh, reason people uh, have been switching is that uh, milk, you know, very few people drink a glass of milk, right? Like you do in the way that you would eat a steak or a burger, like a milk is an ingredient in other things. And so like it's mm. an ingredient in your coffee or it's an ingredient in your uh, cereal and so on. And so it's, it's uh, easier if it's not identical for you to move along with it. Um, and then cost has also come way down to the point where some of the brands of plant-based milks are actually cost competitive with cow milk. So in terms of the, uh, the alternative meat market, one, the price is not there yet. You know, it's still more expensive than commodity meat. Two, um, many of the brands are not um, identical in function. Like you can tell a difference. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they're not perfect mimicries. And, you know, I question whether it needs to be a mimicry. Like, uh, you know, if you think about, um, you know, how we, we used to live pluck geese for pens, you know, we used to write with quill pens for thousands of years and nobody stopped using quill pens because they felt bad for the geese. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented and they were so superior to the uh, quill pen that we switched over. You know, you didn't have to stop and dip your ink, your quill in the pen in the ink well. You didn't have to constantly sharpening the tip of the quill. Like you know, metal fountain pen is just a dramatically better way. You're still writing, but it's just a better way to write. And I do think that for some of these animal-free meats, they may not be identical to meat that comes from a slaughtered animal, but they may be better. They may think people may actually prefer them and think, hey, I like this better than animal-based meat. So we'll see. Thing will take some time though. Got a long way to go before we get even to 15% of the meat market, honestly. Yeah. How do you um how do you see labeling and food regulation? Like I don't think it should affect you too much in terms of I think maybe labeling. Like, is it crab? Is it is it like am I selling crab meat? Is that like how you label it to go in that section of the supermarket like how do you see it working out um yeah so i think like if you let's say that you're going to buy a frozen box of crab cakes that were blended with our mycelium what you would see is like on the ingredient deck it would say yeah. crab and then it would say mycoprotein 
And so those would be the key things that um, would be on that ingredient deck. Maybe they'd add something else, I don't know, but our ingredient just gets labeled as mycoprotein. So I'm less, I'm less worried about this than some other people. I think that we're gonna be just fine on labeling. Um, and you know, nobody's confused by this, right? Like nobody yeah. who buys soy milk thinks they're buying cow's milk. Um, you know, similarly, you know, nobody who buys peanut butter wonders if they're buying dairy butter, right? Like, yeah, they might say butter, but you know, peanut butter is different from dairy butter. Um, I don't think that people who buy a microprotein based hot dog are going to be concerned um, and, and con confused if there isn't pork or beef or dog in a hot dog. Yeah. I think it's uh, it kind of goes back to what you were saying like a minute ago as well. It's like a lot of people are developing these new products and they're trying to taste or be very similar to what currently exists. But I've always felt like, why spend millions of dollars to be average? You know, like if, if you have the ability to have all these extra ability, you know, to be extraordinary, I don't know, like I almost want to quote The Incredibles where it's like if everyone's super, then no one is, but like you actually have like some super abilities in terms of what you can like pack in there. Um, like I think some of the ones that are even talked on your website and your book, and in, in general, on uh, anyone who's like uh, been listening in for a while, is that you can really maximize the nutritional profile. Like you can really tailor make like the the benefit of the food versus like cows have been somewhat slightly bred. Like there's some one of the, some of them. Like I think there's one in Australia that's like I think like ten feet tall or something. Like it's just a monster of a cow. Um, but for the most part, like it, it is just kind of like you get what we've just like co-evolved to uh, enjoy versus like what we can maximize for our health benefit if that makes sense um what are um do you see, do you see any other benefits to these type of alt proteins uh, other than what i'm like kind of outlining yeah I, I think that actually not only is it extremely important for the world right so it reduces climate changing it reduces the emissions that affect climate change it reduces the uh really uh, horrible animal cruelty that we inflict on farm animals it reduces the deforestation associated with meat production um, you get products that are better for you meaning they have less saturated fat less cholesterol fewer calories and so on however i do think it also opens up really interesting novel culinary experiences that people haven't enjoyed before and so think about like cheese you know many people eat cheese every day they consider it a staple of their diet they don't want to give it up but cheese is pretty new to the diet of humanity you know not only did we only start uh, drinking cow's milk only thousands of years ago but we didn't learn how to curdle milk into cheese for thousands of years after that and so now, you know, everybody knows about Brie and Gouda and Swiss and cheddar, but these were unknown to people only thousands of years ago. Um, nobody had ever fantasized about Brie or Gouda or any of these other cheeses. There's hundreds of cheeses. Nobody had ever fantasized about them before, but yet a novel food technology, in that case, adding rennet to milk, made the milk curdle and turn into cheese. And that opened up this novel culinary experience for people that we now uh, know as cheese and that many people love eating every day. Well, what will a way, if we divorce meat production from animal slaughter, what novel culinary experiences might that open up for us? Yeah. What foods that we have never fantasized about might our descendants become, uh, you know, consider staples of their diet? Like I, I like to think about a world in which, let's say, for example, your friend might, own a, um, 
an ice cream maker or a bread maker on her kitchen counter, but also a, a meat maker. And, you know, she could be ordering little tea bags full of spores that you drop in and you could come back a day later and have freshly brewed meat made right there for your dinner that evening. Or what if instead, you know, you go to a local um, restaurant and they might be brewing their own IPA on the back. What if they're brewing your dinner from fungi spores right then and there? I like to think about what types of novel food experiences might we be able to enjoy because of these types of food technologies. And I would love to live in that type of a world where meat did not mean flesh from a one slaughtered animal per se, but meat was a whole diverse set of protein experiences that were satiating to us that were coming from fungi, from animal cells, from plant proteins and more. I've noticed that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of startups out there that, that, that either on paper say that, their cell egg, you know, but then when you see like a couple of years go by, it's like plant-based. Um, I'm just wondering yeah. as, some, as, as someone who's in the area where I see some of that happening, is there, is there a reason why, I mean, is it the cell egg, I mean, it just, is there technical hurdles? Is it, but they don't take down the fact that on their website, they say like we're cell egg, even though it's plant-based yeah. in terms of what they're selling, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Lowell. I mean, I think these companies want to garner the type of valuations mm -hmm. that biotech companies get um, even if they're uh, just using off-the-shelf commodity plant proteins, right? Um, so uh, I know of several uh, companies that have done that, and I don't want to speak for them, but I presume that they found animal cell culture to be prohibitively difficult or prohibitively expensive. It's really tough. It's really hard to do, and it's hard to do it economically. And so, you know, my hat's off to them for trying to find a way forward to uh, keep their startup alive and try to find a path that could lead to where they want to go. You know, when Richard Branson uh, was starting as, you know, with a record label, I'm sure he wasn't thinking about buying $6 billion of Boeing planes, right? Like he found ways to keep the company growing that he would never would have dreamt of when, when he started that company, uh, Virgin Records. And I, I think the same is so with startups that a lot of them end up pivoting and expanding and doing other things that they never would have dreamt of at first, and then they end up finding a way forward. And I, I'm rooting for the small companies in this space, including those who have done what you just said and gone from animal cell culture to utilizing plant proteins. Yeah. Well, do you think they should at least like update their website or is it just within the degree of marketing? Uh, I think that they should be truthful with their investors yeah. and their prospective investors as well. And I think company that like there is a problem where companies want to try to make it appear like they are doing deep biotech. Um, when in reality, uh, they, they may not be doing such deep biotech. And the reason they do that is to command higher valuations from prospective investors. And I, I think it's imperative that companies be honest and forthright about what they're doing when they are pitching their companies for investment. Have you found any, um, so I know a lot of startup founders, I talk to a lot of startup founders, and this is usually something we don't talk about too much on the uh, podcast because like most people, aren't very good at it, but I just get the feeling that you'd be good at it. So I'm gonna ask you the question, how do you uh, keep your investors happy? Like there, I, there was a one startup that I knew that literally sent the, their investors like one email in two years and they were like, okay, I'm gonna go ask them for money. And then they were all kind of, they were a little less, they weren't very excited to give them money, I would say. Um, but so yeah, so yeah. I'm curious, what have you found to be effective in terms of just uh, keeping investors happy and keeping, them, keeping a really good communication or stuff like that? 
Well, you know, I certainly want investors to be happy, but I'm more concerned about them being engaged. The thing is, mm -hmm. like, investors are not just mere capital. Like, they're people who can be on your team, right? So, you know, if you think about like a CEO as a coach, and um, you know, they're uh, you know, you have all these, let's say, sponsors of the team. Well, what if they could help your team actually perform better? Like not just paying for sponsorships so you put their logo on your jersey, but you actually had them helping to train the players or give you ideas on what plays to run. And that's the way that I view our investors is that I, I don't want them to be mere capital alone. Yes, the capital was absolutely needed. However, we want their engagement too. And so for me, it's not like, oh, am I updating the investors often enough? I certainly try to, um, but um, it's about how can I enlist them to help us succeed? Because they didn't just place a bet and then walk away. Like they placed a bet on our company and they can increase the chance of that bet paying off for them. Uh, so my goal is really to have investor engagement with the company where, where appropriate. Is that does that look like uh, like once a quarter when you give an update saying like hey here's some ways they they could help out like what does it actually look like for for startup founders or would be people doing this type of stuff like they can take yeah some, uh, well I'll give you an example different investors have different skill sets some of them may know lots of people in the food industry and so they can bring talent to us and attract talent to us. Uh, some of them may uh, have, you know, uh, relationships with journalists who may be interested in covering our work so more people know about it. Uh, they may have. Um, uh, connections to other major food companies who can become customers of ours. Yeah. Or maybe one of them happens to have a particular expertise in IP law and you can rely on them rather than having to pay a law firm to give you counsel about your IP. Uh, those are just a, a few ideas off the top of my head that come uh, to mind immediately. Um, but you know, my goal is to figure out how can we use the unique advantages, the, the, the experience and the expertise that these investors have to make our company more likely to succeed? How, um, when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, like one of the things that people like about uh, Alt Protein is that uh, it can be decentralized, for instance. Like you could have like, you know, a plan all over the place and then bring everything together, um, which is, I think, more of like a theoretical thing. I haven't seen many people actually do. Like most people are doing what you're doing where they have like a centralized plant that they're thinking of like blue nalu i think it's just building like a giant plant um how do you how do you find people that can help you do something that hasn't been done before you just find like similes yeah. or like yeah i mean i i share the enthusiasm for seeking to decentralize at the same time i don't think there's many buyers out there who care like i don't i like if you go to a walmart which sells 25 percent of groceries I don't think that there's one person who's walking in to buy groceries when they're looking at a product and they're determining whether to buy it. If they ask themselves, did this come from a centralized or decentralized source? Um, I think that it's something that uh, you know may be important for uh, food security and so on, um, but I don't think there's a lot of individual customers who care about the issue. That said, you, know, you don't wanna have a, a situation where you have one mishap, right? Like an earthquake or a lightning strike or a terrorist attack that takes out a huge portion of the food supply. Um, you know, this actually happened during the pandemic where you had a couple slaughter plants that went, uh, you know, that essentially went offline because of COVID and a large portion of the nation's meat supply all of a sudden was, you know, not uh, not available. Um, and so you had major meat price spikes uh, as a result of that during the pandemic. So, uh, you know, I, I don't I, I I do see a pathway toward having a, a, a like multiple plants that are spread out across. Um, but you can't ignore the efficiencies that come up with with scale. I mean, sadly, like there's a reason why people like to concentrate their manufacturing in one location. Is there um, 
So I, I've been talking to, uh, I was talking to Ahmed Khan. He's like the founder of uh, Cellagri. And we were trying to figure yeah. out what's the cost differential between centralized versus decentralized. And I don't think, look, we came to the conclusion, like, I don't think anyone's like ran the numbers on this. Have you done numbers on like what the cost difference would be to like the end consumer? Uh, first of all, I'm a big fan of Ahmed. He's a great guy. So my hat's off to him. Um, if he doesn't know, it'd be unlikely that I would know, but the short answer is no, I, I don't have any answer to that. Yeah. We have a running thing for anyone who can figure that out. Like do like a postdoc or something, just like figure out. Cause like a lot of people, uh, like, we, like we're talking about, we know theoretically, Hey, you can do decentralized, but like, do people care? Is there a cost? Is it, will you save money by doing decentralized? Does it cost more? Like stuff like that. Uh, would the government have to come in and like subsidize it? Like, uh, like oil or something like that to that effect to make it something that would allow the food to be robust or is it inherently better stuff but like no one's i don't think anyone's actually studied it so you know if someone out there can like you know do their research it'd be great because i don't think anyone's actually uh it's like one of those theoretical things that no one's really thought to question interesting yeah well if somebody does it i hope you'll let me know yes if i i'll, I'll send it to you and then you can okay. you can have like a some madison and then alaska and you can just get all over the place <laughs> i'm gonna start a um, folder lowell's ideas Yes. Well, there's um, one element of these all proteins, especially when uh, I don't know to what scale you need to have a factory to produce like, you know, like the equation to produce like X amount. But I've always thought that if there was a disaster of some kind, you could have like a tanker truck, a tanker like kind of parked off offshore and be producing food uh, locally uh, and then supply the food to the disaffected population. Because one of the things that happens during disasters is that people start suffering from malnutrition pretty quick. Even if they are getting food, they don't get the nutritional requirements to be healthy and productive during that horrible time that's going on. And uh, I don't know if you're a fan of history at all, but like many, 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 many years ago, there's this thing called the Bronze Age Collapse. And uh, it, it ba basically, they don't know why it happened. They basically think that like there was a, a volcano, a famine, and a bunch of jerks were coming around like raiding people. And so like it, it literally caused everyone to go back like 5,000 years. And so when there's when bad things happen or uh, when bad things happen, it's kind of like the, the, the decentralized nature of things is kind of a inherently a nice thing to do, like in terms of uh, making it robust as a species, so like stuff like that doesn't happen. But um, from a business case, like I don't think you can plan. You, know, you can't like, you know, bet on like, oh, well, you know, if there's a, an, a super volcano that blows up tomorrow, I'll be ready to supply that need. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's a, kind of an edge case. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm. So first of all, I, I definitely want to read more about the Bronze Age collapse. I am a fan of history, although I don't know anything about that story, so I intend to read about it. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. Uh, but in short, I'm pretty pessimistic uh, that um, our civilization is that robust. Um, I think even minor, uh, even minor tweaks to the level of comfort that we have will lead to pretty bad behavior uh, from people. I have one friend who thinks that you know if there were an event like that, that people would cooperate and learn to grow food together. Whereas I, I think that's like extremely unlikely and that more likely is like warlordism and whoever has, you know, the most guns will have the most resources. And so, um, you know, it's something that I, I do think about whether we can do anything about it or not, I don't know. Um, but right now we live in a society of such unbelievable abundance that, you know, nobody worries where their next meal is gonna come from. But as soon as that's not true, as soon as people don't know where their next meal is going to come from, you can rest assured that the veneer of civilization that we have over us, or we think that we are a civilized society, will come off pretty quickly. Yeah, I, most people don't know what it feels like to be hungry, or like how that affects your personality, like headaches, the the pain of it, how it narrows your right. focus. Yeah, like you're not going to be, it's not like 
oh, and a per- like when people think of these things, they think about it from the couch, like in the couch in this perfect ideal situation where I have like a, some some cocoa and some Oreos over here or something. It's like what if I was in that area, you know, if, if I was in The Walking Dead, I'd survive. It's like, well, at, first of all, 99% of you're dead. Like I'm dead. You're, you know, like we're not going to make it in the, that universe. And most people don't know how to grow things anymore. Like, like the cool right. thing about what you're building is you like if there was something bad that happened. For the most part, you you and your team would have the technology to start, you know, producing food for people in California. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the benefits of indoor controlled agriculture is that even, you know, with uh, climate or if you think about like if there's like a, a major, um, you know, weather event, we still grow, right? Like yeah. our, our growing season is 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, and it's in controlled conditions. Now, if we couldn't get electricity to us or if we couldn't get workers or we couldn't get food to our workers, that would be pretty prohibitive. Um, but as long as we had that, as long, you know, as long as like, you know, you didn't have like massive, such massive disruption in the supply that you couldn't garner electricity or labor, um, you know, we could do it, um, we could do it. So uh, I do think this helps to promote resilience, but more importantly, like, even though, you know, we can't control for exploding volcanoes or asteroids, we are the asteroid right now. Like humans are the yeah. asteroid. Like we are heating up the planet and we're deforesting. We're causing huge numbers of animals to go extinct. And our technology can help to avert that. Like the number one cause of deforestation is producing meat. And so we can slash the number of trees that would have to get cut down by switching to eating fungi rather than eating animals. And if we do that, uh, maybe we'll have a better chance of averting catastrophe. What do you think, um, in a non-disaster situation moving forward, how do you think traditional, you know, people who raise chickens or cows or pigs and stuff like that, as this type of technology becomes more prevalent, what do you think is going to become of them? Will it be like horses? Where, like, at one point, we didn't have enough horses to, like, supply all of New York, and they were concerned that there's going to be, like, six feet of, like, horse manure everywhere? How do you see that transition happening? Well, um, you know, some jobs will no longer exist. And this is what always happens, right? Like, you know, um, you're talking about being on the couch with cocoa and and hot chocolate, and you're probably streaming Netflix. And while you're streaming Netflix, you're not shedding a tear for everybody who lost their jobs who used to work at Blockbuster, right? Like, you know, this happens that, you know, we don't sit around thinking, hey, I wonder what happened to all the people who used to work at Kodak now that we all have digital film rather than buying all the the negatives and chemicals from Kodak. This happens. Technology displaces and renders obsolete. And so there will be changes in the economy as a result of this. Now, it doesn't mean that people won't have jobs. Like You still need farming. You know, let's just think about fungi fermentation. You still have to feed the fungi, right? You're still using either uh, sugars or other types of carbon sources to feed your fungi. So somebody's got to grow the crops for it, but it's so much more efficient that you need to grow less. You need far fewer acres planted. And so uh, there will be a shift. And there has been a shift for the last 100 plus years of people, you know, moving out of agriculture to the point where, you know, it used to be the majority of Americans were involved in agriculture, and now it's less than 1%. Um, so, you know, a lot of people just don't want to be involved in that type of work. Most people who work inside of slaughter plants don't do it because they love it. They do it because they're, you know, migrant workers or, excuse me, immigrant workers who don't have another option. 
So uh, some of these jobs probably will be displaced. And I think it's very important that we find ways to minimize the impact on the very people who those jobs for whom those jobs would no longer exist. You know, I doubt that the digital film industry did anything to help people transition out of the print film industry. I doubt that when cars were invented that Henry Ford was thinking, hey, let's retrain all the people who make the saddles and the whips and everything else to do something else. But I would actually really like to see some type of a program that helps people who are involved in animal farming and animal slaughter switch to other jobs instead. Do you see, um, there's a lot of these programs out there like women in coding, that type of thing. Do you see your company at some point having like a, if you were in like a slaughter industry and you want to learn how to become like a lab technician or something, like something that is like somewhat skilled, but not too skilled, they can kind of get an entry level. Do you see yourself ever having like a program like that, like either an internship or like an apprenticeship? I'm a big fan of apprenticeships because I think trades are pretty cool. But uh, is yeah, I mean, doing something like that? first off, though, I really like the idea, but I do think that there are still lots of lower skilled jobs involved that you don't need to have be a microbiologist in order to make it work. So, yeah. you know, if you look, I mean, t you know, take the largest fungi fermentation company, Corn, Q-U-O-R-N, you know, they got hundreds of people working in these factories who have no prior training. These are people who are working on, along the, the production lines. And of course, they have to learn skills while on the job, but very few of them start out with some degree that helped them toward this end. Uh, so, you know, they're still factories, right? They still employ people. You just have to figure out, um, you know, in, instead of, you know, let's say uh, putting a knife inside of an animal's throat, you're instead going to be doing something else. Yeah. My uh, high school teacher talked about his first job was he had to take a sledgehammer to cows to their heads. And he, he said he would get like really you know big arms for that. But he became a teacher, so I think he'd, he'd be happier. But when he, if he was like as a first job was in your plant, I don't think there's anything remotely comparable to something as horrific as that they'd have to do, like maybe like, you know, clean yeah, I mean, like, so uh, first clean of all, that's it. Um, you know, I mean, of course, there are always some people who are sadistic, but most people don't really want to be causing yeah, no. such violence to anybody, let alone to animals who are defenseless. So I, you know, I, I think most people would probably not shed any tears if we no longer had a job where somebody had to take, yeah. you know, a, a sledgehammer to an animal's face. Um, now, at the same time, you know, it's not to say that uh, you know, we should ignore those people who currently do that. It's just to say we got to find better things for them to do. Is there a component of your day? I mean, you probably extremely busy with everything you have going on, but is there a component of your day where you go out and you see the people that are going to benefit from what you're doing? Do you see the, like, visit a factory and, 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 and uh, see what it was to see what it's going to be? You ever, like, go out and, like, kind of touch the change, if that makes sense? Yeah, I actually visit food production facilities pretty frequently. So yeah, that's that is. And, um, you know, I like to envision a way to make it profitable to not raise animals. Uh, you know, raising animals for food is a, a, a very difficult technology on the planet, on animal welfare, on public health. And so when I'm talking to people in the food industry, you know, my goal is to help find ways that we can make it profitable not to do that. You know, for a long time, it's been profitable to destroy the planet. What if we can make it profitable to not destroy the planet? That would be great. And uh, wildlife and domesticated animals like chickens and pigs would be a lot better off too. Yeah, I've been reading for some time that when I'm talking to or reading about experts that they, like it tends to be like an us versus them, like the traditional food sourcing versus like the new uh, food sourcing. Uh, do you, do you still see that being, is that 
the case when you're talking to people that the, the traditional is not very interested in the new technology or do they seem very interested and they're open to testing and stuff like that? Uh, no, I think that many people in the meat industry today uh, recognize the future will be different. And so they recognize that, um, like go back to Kodak as an example, you know, we all know Kodak went bankrupt because they didn't embrace digital. And so their core business yeah. got cannibalized. Um, but, you know, Canon also was a big competitor in the gelatin based film industry. And now they're a major manufacturer of digital cameras. So, you know, Canon still sells us the same thing, right? It's a way to capture our memories through photography, but they do it in a way that is very different from the way that they used to do it. And so a lot of meat industry, a lot in the meat industry, they see that and they want to be Canon. They don't want to be Kodak. They say, hey, listen, we can still produce really great protein products for customers, but it doesn't have to come from the old way. Maybe there are new technologies, new innovations that can create a better way to recreate the meat experience. That I think is uh, the example of a forward thinking meat company, as opposed to some of those that you know, just say, hey, we've been slaughtering animals for the whole history of our company and we're gonna keep slaughtering animals for the whole future of our company too. I always picture people like that with the 10 gallon hat, but that's very unfair. Cause I think there's a lot of people probably in Texas or whatever that would uh, yeah. be cool with the tradition as well. There's a whole section of, I was driving through Southwest Texas and I went over a hill and I grew up on a farm, so I'm, I'm used to like there being a, a lot of cows, but I, I went over a hill and it was like a mountain of cows like cows as far as the eye could see and it's like that's wow. a lot to manage that's a lot to manage so if you could like minimize that to some factories or some plants like i mean that just in terms of like, the mental stress of that would probably be pretty great not even the, the benefits financially otherwise um so we have talked about like a lot of really cool things that you're you're good at basically like so far it's been like i've been asking questions that you know you, you have a great response for what uh what are you not good at like what are you currently working on getting better at uh, so many things, Lowell. Um, you know, my goal as a CEO of a company is to surround myself with people who know more and are more effective than I am. And so I have, uh, as an example, my co-founder of the Better Meco, whose name is Joanna Bromley, is dramatically more financially literate than I am. She can build financial models. She can uh, really, uh, in, in Excel, she is an unbelievable wizard, whereas I am not. Um, and so I have really relied on her to help teach me to become more, you know, I, I felt in my personal life, very financially literate, but in my professional life, uh, my co-founder Joanna has really taught me a lot uh, about the finances involved with running a company. Um, I also, um, want to become, um, much more fluent in other languages. You know, it always is kind of embarrassing when I meet people from other countries and like, oh, yeah, I speak three or I speak four languages. And it's like, you know, I speak English barely. So I, um, you know, I'm currently learning Spanish and I'm starting to also do some Mandarin as well. And so I'd like to be at least bilingual and maybe trilingual would be even preferable. Great. I think the best piece of advice I'd give for that is I've talked to people who that's their big thing. They said uh, they've said that immersion is like the biggest thing. So if you can find like a, a place where you can just speak Spanish for like the whole meal or something like that, where everyone speaks Spanish to you, or if you find like a place where everyone's speaking Mandarin, someone's house is burning down. The, I don't know if you can hear the cops, but someone's driving by, like someone's in trouble. Wow, that's really loud. One second. Jesus. That was like deafening. <laughs> I, I'm surprised you can hear that. But, um, man, I like destroyed my thought. Uh, what was I saying? I'm sorry. Um, speaking Mandarin. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying. Um, my God, 
That was like a level 10 on terms of loudness. I don't know. This wall is did not help. But uh, yeah, uh, so immersion is like the best thing you can do. I don't know if you're doing that currently, but I mean, you have the Bay Area, which I think has a lot of people Mandarin and Spanish. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the executives at the Better Mexico is born in Mexico, and I do speak Spanish with her at work from time to time. We also have a principal scientist here who was born in China, and so she has uh, been very generous to uh, share some Mandarin lessons with me as well. So, uh, so here's some like personal questions. I like to let people get a sense of who the guests are beyond just the technical stuff that they're up to. Um, what what does happiness mean to you? Like, how, how would you define it? Uh, for me, happiness is is more a sense of like meaning and mission fulfillment. So for yeah. um, you know, I'm always happy. Like if I'm with my wife and our dog, like that makes me happy at that moment. Uh, but for me, like when I think about what I want to accomplish in my life. Um, that's what I think of as being happy, which is essentially trying to reduce the amount of suffering in the world. And you know, we as a species are committing enormous amounts of, of violence and, and cruelty toward billions of creatures. And we are creating a world that's uh, largely uninhabitable for many of them as well. And so if I can play a role in alleviating some of the suffering that we are causing, a little would make me happier. Hmm. There's um. Is there an area outside of what you're currently working on that you're able to affect change? Are you like spending weekends like doing conservation in, in the, for local organ, uh, organisms or something? Like, how are you um, maximizing um, that? Um, yeah, so, you know, my wife and I uh, regularly foster dogs. We're fostering one dog right now who we love, but we're looking forward to her finding a new home. Uh, well, you know, I'll do things like with my family, like uh, doing like beach cleanups and so on. Um, but for the most part, I'm very, I'm very focused on my work at the Better Meat Co. and also uh, my writings as well. So I, you know, I wrote this book, Clean Meat. I'm working on making an updated version of it now, actually. Um, and I'd like to publish a novel, too, that I've written on this very topic. So uh, I hope that I can uh, find a publisher who will be interested in, um, in bringing that novel to the world, uh, which I have now written. Um, but I'm looking forward to uh, putting it into the world. Is it a... Is it a nonfiction? Is it a fiction novel? It is. Okay. I was just, I would think that, you know, it's kind of like investors, as long as you treat the previous publishers pretty well and they made money, that they'll be nice to you as you move forward. But um, it's, it's, it's yeah, entirely it's a different very, thing. It's a very yeah. different world. Yeah, it's a very different world from nonfiction to fiction, unfortunately. Um, mm. So it, it's a you know, very, very different, very different world. Did, uh, did you do anything to help your book become a bestseller in terms of, uh, you know, like, did the publishers make that happen? I mean, the content itself, like it speaks for itself, but like to, after it's been made and it's like out there for people to see, like, I think sometimes people have like a, if I build it, they will come. But in this case, people actually did come. So I'm curious, like, what did you do to affect that? Um, you know, I was content with Simon and Schuster as a publisher. Um, I think they did a good job. Uh, the, the big things that happened that helped to the book, uh, do well were not related to them. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal did like a multi-thousand word review of the book. NPR did a homepage story review on the mm -hmm. book. Um, so, uh, you know, these are things that were not generated um, by my publisher. Um, and those are things that I both made happen and I think had some luck in as well. Mm. Um, internally, just in terms of like how you think of yourself, if you had to just say how, how old you feel mentally, not how old you are, like, how old do you feel mentally? How old would you say you are? That makes sense. Well, when I look in the mirror, I feel like I can't believe well, what happened to me. But when I 
uh, think uh, mentally, I'm probably around like 23 years old, which is, you know, a couple of decades of generosity toward me. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I realized that my face does not look like it, um, but I have, I have strived hard to be, uh, remain athletic even as I get older. And so I, I hope that uh, my metabolic age may be lower than my uh, biological age is. Um, but, uh, you know, mentally, I don't think I'm that different than I was when I was like in my early twenties, actually. Is there a, is that, that time period significant for anything? Cause people usually pick somewhere between like 22 and 26. I'm very curious why this is. I feel like I'm 45, like 50 or something like that in my head for a variety of reasons. But, um, I'm always curious, like what is the anchor point for that feeling? I don't know. Maybe it's when you first become an adult. Um, I, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, but I will say like, I, you know, mentally my self image is still as somebody who is like this young and vital person. Um, even though, uh, you know, my body doesn't feel it anymore. So, you know, they say that you're a grown up when you groan every time you get up and that's like how I feel. I'm like in bed. I'm like, I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I joke about like, you know, just getting older all the time, but, uh, I, I don't, you know, sometimes I say my age, which is 43 and I, I can't believe that. Like when I was 23, somebody who was 43 was very old to me. And mm -hmm. now I think of it as like, you know, 43, it's like prime of your life. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you're like one year off from, I think Teddy Roosevelt being president. So you have that to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I feel yeah. quite accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got that and you're kind of in the area where you could like, uh, uh take down a Jaguar or something like he did when someone was trying to attack his, uh, his animal. Um, the... Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I don't I, I don't have like any interest in slaughtering all the wildlife that Teddy Roosevelt slaughtered. But yeah, he I will was, say one cool thing about him. Um, you know, he was giving a speech and a would be assassin came up and shot him. Yep. And uh, despite being shot, he continued the speech and only went to the hospital after finishing the speech. And I, I would like to think that if that ever happened to me, that I would continue the speech. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, when uh, when he was in the White House, he would he would still box with people, and halfway through the White House, someone hit him in the face so hard he went blind in, in one of his eyes, and he just like kind of hid it from everybody. Like that guy, when he was a kid, huh. they thought he was going to die all the time, like he had asthma or something, and every day wow. he would hear his parents talk about how he was going to die. And so when he was like eighteen or like sixteen, eighteen, he started like being really physically active and just making the most of everything in his life. Um, but you could just like see like that just never went away when he was forty five, fifty five, whatever. Like it, I think one of his um, kids literally like walked on the beaches of Normandy. Like he was just like a little version of Teddy Roosevelt. Huh. But um, the yeah, mental age is interesting. The, so, do you have any thoughts on? Because we're you're talking about like mushrooms, like fungi. Do you have any thoughts on like psilocybin? I've been reading more about this. Apparently, there's good uses for it. Yeah, I mean, I'm persuaded that it's um, that it's useful for people with PTSD and and maybe even everybody. Um, I've listened to Michael Pollan's podcast about this. I've not yet <clears throat> read his book on the topic, um, but uh, people who I know and think of as very smart and um, who I respect are advocates for it. I've never done it. Um, I've actually never used any illicit drug of any kind. So I've never smoked pot. I've, I, I don't drink alcohol. I, you know, never got into like any of that stuff. Um, so for me, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm a little bit hesitant uh, just because it's like my personality, I think. Um, yeah. 
but I'm pretty convinced that the benefits of psilocybin use are, are real. And, um, maybe if some, maybe if like a doctor prescribed it for me, maybe I would do it. Um, I'd have to talk to my wife and see if she was amenable to, uh, to me, uh, trying that out. We actually know somebody who had like a psychotic break from doing it and, um, and was like in a mental institution for a while. And so, you know, that's like very nerve wracking for her. Um, so I don't know, I've never done it, but my view is that based on what I know, probably uh worthwhile yeah i'm uh i'm in the same boat i i when people when my doctor asked me if i drank and smoke and all these things i say no i'm very boring i don't i uh i get high on life i guess um yeah I mean, it, yeah it you know for me like yeah you know for me like i'm happy to hang out with my wife and my dog i i don't need alcohol or, or drugs or anything but you know the people who are using psilocybin they're not doing it necessarily you know to get high per se you know, yeah trying to you know, have some health benefits or something. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm all for it, even though I've never done it. Mm-hmm. So for, for people who want to stay up to date with what's going on in your world, the next books, stuff like that, is there, you have two websites that are going to be in the show notes, but is there, you have like a newsletter that you like routinely just send out like, Hey, I've done this this week or something. I do. Can, um, yeah. so if you go to my personal webpage, which is just paul shapirocom again, that's paul shapirocom You can sign up for my personal newsletter. It's very short. You can read it easily in like, you know, less than one minute. It comes out every Friday and it's just basically news that I found interesting that week. Sometimes it's news that involves me. Sometimes it's news that doesn't, but it's interesting things, whether relating to alternative protein, to fungi, to animal welfare and more. And so you can, again, sign up for that at paul-shapiro.com. And um, is there anything we missed that you think we should cover before we wrap up? Uh, No, you know, the only thing I would mention is that I, you know, for me, I, it's important to be reminded when you're running a for-profit company that the, you know, making money, of course, is, is imperative, but there's a higher mission to what we're doing we're trying to do is to create a world where we don't have to deforest the planet in order to feed humanity. We don't have to torment animals in order to enjoy a a dinner. And um, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, had a really good line where he said, you know, it's kind of like making red blood cells. Like if your body doesn't make red blood cells, then you'll die. But that doesn't mean that your purpose in life is to make red blood cells. Your purpose is whatever you decide. And the same is so with companies and money, like a company must make money in order to survive. But that doesn't mean it's the sole mission of the company is to make money. I want to make money. I want our company to thrive financially and for our investors to have a great return on their investment. At the same time, the real mission of our company is to slash the number of animals who are needed for food so that we can create a better world for the animals, for humanity and for the planet. And it's important to remember that. I think, you know, a lot of the times when they're in startup land, they, you know, get very focused on making money. And, you know, first, you know, 90% of startups fail. So, you know, your chance of making money is low in that case. Um, But it would not be sufficient for me to make money from this. Like if I, if I thought this was a great way to make money that didn't do good in the world, I wouldn't do it. In fact, if I could guarantee that the company would succeed in its mission and I made zero dollars from it, I would happily make that trade. And I think for other, for founders, it's important to remember that. Like, what's the actual mission of why you're doing this? Mm-hmm. It, um, there's a Ambassador Galactica. I don't know if you've ever watched the, the TV show from the 2000s. It's very good. 
But uh, they had the on the wall like a number of the people that were left after the silence destroyed everything. And so I, I was thinking, what if in your factory instead of like days since last incident, it was like every time you brought on a new you know partnership, you could literally calculate out how many animals you were saving. You're like you know animals that we've saved this month, like fifty thousand, sixty thousand, stuff like that. I would love that. Uh, it would be really wonderful. Um, it, it would be a pleasure to see that number. So uh, from from your lips to the heavens, Lowell. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn with Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.